Welcome to Repros Fight Back, a podcast on all things related to sexual and reproductive health rights and justice. Hi, Repros. How's everybody doing? I'm your host, Jenny Wetter, and my pronouns are she, her. So, y'all, I have some really big news to share, and I'm... (laughs) very overwhelmed and very excited and just so freaking proud of our team. Um, So I told you late last year that we were up for consideration for some awards under the Anthem Awards and everybody had to go out and vote. And so I thought we were only up for those community choice awards where we needed people to vote for us to win. And so imagine my surprise when uh, we got an email uh, earlier this month or in in uh, January saying that um, Reapers Fight Back actually won two awards. Separate from that, I y'all, I cried. I, I'm completely honest. I cried. I I did not see it coming. I was just so overwhelmed by the thought of just this amazing recognition of our work. So uh, uh, that is to say, Repros Fight Back won two Anthem Awards. We won first a Bronze Award uh, for a National Awareness Campaign um, in the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion category. And we won a Silver for, again, a National Awareness Campaign for the Human and Civil Rights category. And <laughs> I... I can't believe it. I still can't believe it. It and it's had a while for it to settle in with me because we we knew a little while in advance. We just couldn't tell you until now. I'm I'm just so happy and just so proud of of our team for all of the amazing work that uh, they do. Um so just huge 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 thank you to um the amazing Rachel, the amazing Elena. Um, our editor, Meg, uh, I just thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for all of your hard work. Um, I know I may be the voice and the face, um, but it is not just me doing all of the things and this podcast would not be what it is without the amazing team behind me. So yeah. Uh, very grateful to our editor, Meg, Elena, who does all of our amazing social media, Rachel, who has been with me from the very beginning, helping me, you know, find my way through tricky episodes, but I'm not sure how the outline that I should follow, or she did our social media for a long time, our website, like she has done so much. And I am just so grateful for every one of the six years she has been with me and making this a better and stronger podcast. I am, um, so thankful to the Population Institute for letting me start this podcast or my old boss, Bob, pushing me to start this podcast. Uh, we wouldn't be around six years later without their support and and the freedom to run the podcast the way that we would like and to make the product that we would like and to talk about the issues I would like. I, I'm just so grateful for all of that. And I am so thankful to all of you who have been with us from the very beginning, who have joined us along the way, who joined us today. I just thank you all so much. Um, And just thank you to the Anthem Awards. I am just, again, so overwhelmed and grateful and just so excited. It just means so, so much to have our work um, just to get that kind of approval. And it it just means a lot to me. Um, uh, you know, sometimes you just feel like you record these things and put them out into the void. And so to get that kind of validation, it just, it, it, it meant a lot to me. And I am just so overwhelmed with it all and grateful and so excited. <laughs> uh, so, I can't wait to get the award and be able to hold it in my hand, get the awards and hold them in my hand and and be able to share pictures with y'all. I'm very, very excited. And I'm, again, just so grateful for my team and proud of my team. And just thank you all. Um, yeah, 
It was so hard, y'all. You have no idea how hard it has been to not tell everybody, like shout it from the mountaintops as soon as I got it because I was so excited and again, cried, so overwhelmed. Um, and it took so much not to just like tell everybody, oh my God, you, you guys, we won an award. Oh my God. Uh, but embargoes, y'all. I had to hold on to it. Y'all, I had to hold on to it for like three weeks. It was so hard. But I'm so excited that we can finally tell you all. I'm just really, really happy. Um, and I celebrated at Disney because that is where I was when we could finally be public about it. Um, and again, this is all pre-recorded, so I'll tell you about my trip uh, in our next episode because I... Uh, while I am back in the office now, I had to re-record. Th- I had to record this before I left. So, yeah, just so much excitement. So, just thank you all. Uh, with that, let's turn to this week's episode, or I will keep rambling on and on about how happy and excited I am. And, and y'all don't want to hear that for another like twenty minutes. That would be silly. So, let's turn to the always amazing Bjorn Ruth Snyder with the Council for Global Equality to talk to us about. So we did the blueprint episode, right? Looking at the hope and the excitement for what the um, sexual reproductive health rights and justice community wants in the next four years. So I couldn't think of a better person to do the flip side and talk about the doom of what the um, what we have seen from the anti-rights side of what their asks are for the next four years. So, uh, honestly, there's not a better person to talk to <laughs> about all of the terrible things the anti-right side wants than Bjorn. So I'm so excited to talk to her about this. And let's just go to my conversation with Bjorn. Hi, Bjorn. Thank you for being here. Hi, Jenny. It's wonderful to be back with you. So before we get into this like really happy and upbeat episode, can you maybe introduce yourself and include your pronouns? I would love to. I am Bjorn Ruth Snyder. I use she, her pronouns. I'm the senior policy fellow at the Council for Global Equality, um, which is a coalition of 35 member organizations that work on LGBTQI plus rights in U.S. foreign policy. Um, And I've also worked sort of across sexual and reproductive health and rights in the law and in policy over the last 15 years or so. So at the end of the year, really the beginning of this one, again, I don't know, time, I have no idea what day it is, like whatever. I had on our wonderful colleague, Caitlin from Planned Parenthood and Candace, who was at the National uh, Latina Institute for Reproductive Justice at the time, to talk about like this hopeful document called the Blueprint for, uh, and looking ahead about like what we want for SRHR. So I'm really happy to have you come on and talk about right like real happy uplifting. Oh wait, no. <laughs> uh, that's right. Bjorn is here to basically talk about the opposite. And honestly, there is nobody I would rather talk about just like the terrible, horrible with than you. So thanks for being here to do that. Thank you. I know. I guess um, I, you know, good company at the end of the world. Um, You know, so I'm I'm so glad that Caitlin and Candace got a chance to talk about the blueprint. But I want to start off right off the bat by distinguishing this because the blueprint is a public policy document. Um, that it's that's putting forward um, the ways in which we can um, work within our system to promote uh, sexual and reproductive health and rights and justice and sort of encourage proactive policy that's that's uh, enshrining and systematizing more of the the health rights and the bodily autonomy rights um, that, that we think are the right direction um, for public policy. What I'm going to talk about today is something that is um, outside of just the partisan sphere. And it's, it's, it's outside of simply a public policy document. It's really a vision for the future of the United States that is profoundly undemocratic. And so while I think it's easy to sort of say, well, we did a roadmap, here's theirs. Uh, I, I want to make sure I will take a lot of pauses to really distinguish how this isn't actually just sort of like two different policy visions. Um, it's a it's a systemic vision that does not fit within democracy and, and quite intentionally. So, so 
I'm here to talk about Project 2025. I think probably not a lot of your listeners have actually heard of it before. Um, it's an incredibly broad vision and project for the future of the United States. It includes a lot of staffing plans as well. And then also has something called the Mandate for Leadership, which is a 950-page roadmap for this Project 2025. It is the plan for the next conservative president. I really want to acknowledge in the off, in the sort of in the beginning the incredible work a lot of sort of democracy folks and extremism folks have done around analyzing Project 2025 and trying to drag it out into the light in the last couple months. It's 950 pages and and they're hate filled. 950 pages. So having people go through the whole thing is a pretty big deal. I particularly want to just acknowledge and thank the Global Project Against Hate and Extremism, who have done really invaluable work on this. And their description is Project 2025 is an authoritarian roadmap to dismantling a thriving, inclusive democracy for all. And as I talk about it, and particularly pull out the parts around abortion rights and reproductive rights and LGBTQI plus rights, like I, they're not overstating it. Um, if anything, they're being quite uh, restrained in how they're describing Project 2025. So Project 2025 is Heritage Foundation. They are the lead on it. There's about 80 organizations that have signed on and in and contributed as well. This includes Stephen Miller's new legal organization. It includes Concerned Women for America, uh, CFAM, um, Talking Points America. Is that their acronym? It includes uh, a lot of sort of isolationist anti-immigration groups. Um, it includes Tea Party. It's, I think, really valuable to see all 80 organizations together and understand the depths in which they are working together to create a very, very different vision of what the United States should be. And this isn't, this isn't a dream project. This is a 2025 project. This is a one year from now project. Project 2025 is much broader than sexual and reproductive health and rights and LGBTQI rights, which is what I'm going to talk about mostly today. But I, I think it's really important to start with that structure and start really continuing to reiterate that this is Heritage Foundation. This is like not some quacky off, like on the side folks. This is like a big building in Capitol Hill and, and they are not your grandparents' Heritage Foundation, as harmful as that may have been. And, and so we have to understand this as sort of, this is, this is mainstream vision of what a next conservative president should and will do. The Project 2025, the document, I'm going to mostly call it the project just so I don't like fall all over my words. Um, there's a really massive framework for dismantling the federal government. Um, removing apolitical civil service and putting in far-right political partisans across all federal agencies. This is like an incredible reproductive health rights and justice issue. Um, so I, I continue to want us to have this broad understanding that all 950 pages are anti-sexual and reproductive health rights and justice, anti-LGBTQI. Every page is this incredibly undemocratic vision of the United States. Um, and like the anti-gender movement globally and most authoritarian movements, restricting reproductive rights and LGBTQI plus rights and really targeting them is immediately overrepresented throughout Project 2025 and the roadmap. I, I, I don't want to dwell too much on the sort of inherent authoritarian vision, but but it, I, I do really just want readers to understand that like there's some really concrete dismantling that I'm going to talk about around reproductive rights and around LGBTQI rights, but it it is inseparable from the framework, which is really right out of the authoritarian playbook. It's around politicizing independent institutions, spreading disinformation, 
aggrandizing and really consolidating executive power, weakening all checks and balances, quashing criticism and dissent, marginalizing and restricting the rights of specific communities. That's us. We're specific communities. Corrupting elections and faith in elections and stoking violence. And that's, um, that's the sort of definition of in promoting authoritarianism defined by project democracy. I mean, this is, uh, this is like a real core set of plays and you see them spread throughout Project 2025. You know, as I said, we are those specific communities and we're seeing it already. Um, Project 2025 is really detailed um, and it's a really detailed map, but to a journey that's already underway. We've seen it in Ohio in just the last two months, where even with extensive gerrymandering and the partisan takeover of the judicial system, it was still overcome in, in the fall by a statewide ballot initiative, which resoundingly passed the abortion rights amendment, right? And Republican elected officials now are explicitly seeking to ignore and overturn and delay that democratically demanded action. They're saying what we want is more important than what the people want. And that's just blatantly anti-democratic and is, is what we see sort of in, in, in written all over Project 2025. When I, when I think about LGBTQI rights and I think about reproductive health rights and justice, authoritarian, authoritarian states almost always, maybe always, position themselves as standing against or being the protection from these grievous or mortal threats. The project defines those threats globally, internationally, as China. That's the other that, that the 950 pages are geared against. And then domestically, it's the LGBTQI community. And then more broadly, the left, immigrants, and people working for racial and social justice, uh, aka DEI. They've really smashed those into one. A couple other broad things to know about the project. It's, uh, it is pro-withdrawing from the UN fully. And I'm going to talk about multilaterals in sort of the, the sexual and reproductive health rights and justice sphere. But it's important to know that that is all coming as secondary to just thinking we should withdraw from the international system. And I also really think it's important to just state that Project 2025 is explicitly Christian nationalist to a point that almost takes my breath away, which is where some of the particular vitriol against LGBTQI people and abortion come from. The Global Project Against Hate and Extremism has written a lot more about this, which I, I really do strongly encourage people to read um, and, and really drill down into a lot of the what, what we see reflected in the project that is so um, Christian nationalist and, and why that's so anti-democratic. I, I know that I'm going to really great pains here uh, to make sure people understand that Project 2025 fits really profoundly within historic and global patterns of authoritarianism. It's being presented here under the cloak of legitimacy of the Heritage Foundation, which has spent decades in the United States as a conservative, but not anti-democratic force. So adding in American exceptionalism, that makes it really hard for people to take Project 2025 as their at their word which is an explicit promise and plan to end inclusive democracy in the United States. So from there, I just want to say this is like one uh, Heritage Foundation, like back when I was going into the office, I like had to walk by them every day on my way to work. Um, but two, this is like perfect timing and fitting for this episode because as y'all are hearing this, uh, Last week's episode, I recorded the same morning that I'm talking to Bjorn um, with Garnett Henderson talking about her reporting trip to Idaho, talking about uh, Christian nationalism in Idaho and how we're seeing it spreading in that state in a, in a new and profound way. Um, so this is just like a continuation of one day long conversation for me, but it, it feels fitting that they'll be back to back. 
episodes. I hope people maybe take a break between episodes, <laughs> do a long walk in the woods, stretch, drink really cold, fresh water, do something that recharges you because this is it's serious stuff and it's stuff that we need to take seriously and, and bring our best selves to, unfortunately. So are we ready to switch? Let's dive okay. in. Let, let's dive into, as, as you said, this is this huge framework. We're not going to be able to talk about all of it. So we're just going to pick out a couple bits. So let's start with the, the repro section. So what are some of the repro things we are seeing in here because luckily I have not read the whole thing. I've read the highlights, but I have not read the whole thing. So I am dreading excited. I'm ready to hear what you have to say. So I know you have a really smart set of listeners. I'm not going to be able to like deeply unpack all of their all of their proposals and expectations of the next executive because there's so many. It's a lot, y'all. Um, I will start off with a quote, which is the next conservative president should work with Congress to enact the most robust protections for the unborn that Congress will support. So that's their top line. The project includes deploying existing federal powers to protect, quote, innocent life and vigorously complying with statutory bans on the federal funding of abortion. So increased compliance. And when they say federal powers, they mean the FBI. They mean, um, they mean all of the, the apparatus of the state. Um, the project calls for a ban on abortion pills and tasks the Department of Justice to criminally prosecute providers and distributors of the medication. It calls for new legislation, the Protecting Life and Taxpayers Act, um, which is incredibly broad and includes most of what you'd think. I will say there's a lot of things that to me read as gobbledygook. So I think it's probably inside language um, that we're not necessarily yeah, yeah. Uh, ready, like, like doesn't totally make sense to me. Um, like there's a ban on abortion travel funding. I'm not sure which travel funding that is. Maybe they're talking about, maybe maybe they're talking about refugees, like my uh, underage refugees. Maybe they're talking about Department of Defense. I'm not sure. I'm not going to do their work for them, um, but I'm sure they mean something very concrete by it, and that probably that and then some. Yeah, and and we should take it seriously. The, the project uh, explicitly names abolishing the Gender Policy Council, uh, which, according to them, it would eliminate the central promotion of abortion, health services, comprehensive sexuality, education, education. I'm sorry, I'm doing scare quotes here, which I realize is not helpful <laughs> to folks. Um, and the new woke gender ideology, which has as a principal tenant quote, gender-affirming care, and, quote, sex change surgeries for minors. Internationally, there's a huge amount of emphasis on the Geneva Consensus Declaration. Oh, they, they, they may go away, but they never die. No, not even a little bit. Um, I would say, um, <laughs> for long-time <laughs> listeners, um, there are certain parts of this, that, and, and the 950 pages was different pieces were written by different different organizations and different people with different expertise. I will say there are sections that you can tell were written by Valerie Huber. So a lot of emphasis on the Geneva Consensus Declaration as the international future um, they certainly they put a huge amount of, of emphasis on it as uh, something that should have the weight of law. It targets USAID and sort of talks in great length about all its current failings. They would like to rename USAID's senior gender coordinator role as the senior coordinator of the Office of Women, Children, and Families. They intend to eliminate more than 180 gender advisors and points of contact, um, which are folks that we have fought very hard and long to have a point of contact in all the USAID missions in the world, 
who have some additional training um, and expertise and eye on um, gender issues. They the project again. This is the 950-page document includes stating that U.S. aid should remove all references, examples, definitions, photos, and language on any USAID website, in publications and policies, and in all agency contracts and grants that include the following terms, gender, gender equality, gender equity, gender diverse individuals, gender aware, gender sensitive. And also remove all references to abortion, reproductive health, and sexual and reproductive rights, and, quote, controversial sexual education materials. Just just one or two things that not at all important. And certainly not many people's life work to to help the agencies um, program in relation to need and, and... yeah, articulated needs of of communities, and then and then the big boom. <laughs> um, obviously, I'm talking about Project 2025, which is massive and covers all domestic and foreign policy. But my expertise is foreign policy, and I've been on um, the podcast several times to talk about the expanded global gag rule under the Trump administration and its myriad harms. So it's really hard to be here to share their further vision. And beyond vision, I would say it's expectation. And while some of the things I have listed off, we can think about how it will, what the court challenges might look like. One of the challenges with foreign policy is there's many fewer checks and balances already. So when I talk about their section on protecting life and foreign assistance, I don't think we realistically can expect that any incoming conservative president isn't going to implement it as written. There's no political reason for them not to. Um, and it's going to be up to us to, to challenge legally where we can. But a lot of the places that they intend to go, we're not going to have that opportunity. In addition to a lot of language around increased compliance and monitoring um, and some really nasty language about the WHO and um, the WHO's work in COVID around essential services um, and the inclusion of medication abortion and abortion in essential services in certain contexts, the project intends for the next conservative president to expand the GGR in four ways. And I've been talking about them in these really four discrete ways because the people that it harms, the people who need to be alerted now uh, are different for each of these four. They intend to expand it to all of U.S. foreign assistance. So that includes all of our humanitarian assistance. It includes development assistance um, far beyond the global health assistance that the Trump administration attached it to. They intend to expand it to U.S.-based groups, a set of organizations that up until this year, um, there has been that that hasn't been an expansion because of the fear of court challenge. And they intend to expand it to what they call public international organizations, which are multilaterals. So they they intend to expand it with U.S. funding to poison the full activities of multilaterals. And then they also intend to expand it to government to government funds. So funding that goes directly from the U.S. government to other governments. Not all of these are legal. And I want to be really clear about that. But when you pair it with political and monetary power, they're going to be super destructive beyond any of my current articulation abilities. Um, it's, it's a vision of U.S. power and U.S. interference in the, the health services available around the world and the advocacy that's able to be done around the world. Um, that's really, it's striking 
and there is every reason to take them at their word. So those are the big top lines of what Project 2025 includes on sexual and reproductive health rights and justice. I will say, I mean, I'm I'm not even really delving into the this reproductive justice aspects. I mean, their vision in incarceration, their vision in child safety and well-being, their their vision in immigration, all of it is really horrific. And that could take a, a whole nother two or three shows. So even just sort of abortion rights, that's sort of the top lines, but they they weave culture of life, protecting the family throughout all 950 pages. So like, it's even worse than I thought. And like, I thought it was really terrible before I talked to you, like the parts that I had had time to like take in and digest. I think uh, the expansion of uh, GGR is even worse than I had initially understood, which is, was already terrible. So that's great. Again, Bjorn, bringing me down, man. And I don't know that it's going to get better, right? So, right, like, I guess let while I'm down, like, go ahead, kick me. Let's let's do LGBTQ rights. Like, what, what, what is what is in there? In some ways, if you had to have a thesis about this project, it is the dehumanization of LGBTQI people. Um, it is not an accident. The dehumanization and exclusion of LGBTQI people throughout the project isn't an accident. My colleagues at the Williams Institute recently released this really excellent report and and research on the strong correlation between attacking LGBTQI plus rights and democratic backsliding. This is this is a move. It is a move that authoritarians make and they do it because it works when they need to create the other. It is a handy other to use. The data is there and and now we're seeing it here. We see it a lot globally from Hungary to Uganda, but we also see it in Florida. And it's a hallmark of the anti-gender movement is using this entry point wedge. Um, In Project 2025, frankly, they're incredibly blunt about it. Um, LGBTQI plus people are positioned as the deviants throughout the, the document not as Americans, not as stakeholders in the government, but as the other. The project especially, and I don't think this is going to surprise anyone, it especially goes so far in demonizing the transgender community, equating, quote, transgenderism and transgender ideology with pornography. I want to take this pause to remind us that this is a Heritage Foundation document. This is this is a mainstream plan for next year. We need to take them at their word. They want to use government power, and we see this already in the states. And and I imagine that's a lot of what Garneau is talking about. Like we, there are states that they have already made huge, huge strides at the state and local government level, and they want to use government power in this case at the federal level to demonize and penalize all non-traditional families and are almost entirely throughout the document citing entirely false data about the harm and the failings of LGBTQI families and single parent households. I mean, when have they ever let facts get in the way of a, I mean, good story? I mean, not a good story, a terrible story. Yeah. I mean, this is this is a quote from the the document families comprised of a married mother father and their children are the foundation of a well-ordered nation and healthy society unfortunately family policies and programs under president biden's hhs are fraught with agenda items focusing on lgbtq plus equity subsidizing single motherhood disincentivizing work and penalizing marriage These policies should be repealed and replaced by policies that support the formation of stable, married, nuclear families. So some of the top lines on LGBTQI rights include deleting the terms sexual orientation and gender identity, diversity, equity, and inclusion, gender, gender equality, gender equity, 
gender awareness, gender sensitive, abortion, reproductive health, reproductive rights, and any other term used to deprive Americans of their First Amendment rights out of every federal rule, agency regulation, contract, grant, regulation, and piece of legislation that exists. That is uh, an extraordinary statement. It is an eliminationist. (laughs) Um, And, and, it's about language right now in their their project, but it is about erasing sexual orientation and gender identity, as well as all those other things from government, from public life, from social protections, from democracy. It calls for the Department of Health and Human Services um, to, to never conflate sex with gender identity or sexual orientation. Um, it changes Title IX. I don't think that'll in- surprise many of your listeners um, and rescinds any regulations that uh, prohibit discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation, gender identity, transgender status, and sex characteristics. It calls on the uh, Secretary of HHS to, quote, proudly state that men and women are biological realities that are crucial to the advancement of life sciences and medical care, and that married men and women are the ideal natural family structure because all children have a right to be raised by the men and women who conceived them. The project attacks uh, DOJ for undermining girls' sports, and it also gets into foreign policy. Um, It calls for the State Department to stop pro-LGBTQ initiatives and funding, including sort of to stop LGBTQ promotion and funding and support in in countries like Uganda, where the passage of the Anti-Homosexuality Act has um, targeted and brutalized the, the queer community there. So again, these are just the top lines. Uh, it's an incredibly detailed document that includes a level of specifics about offices, about language changes. But again, you're talking a lot of the sort of worst case scenarios and rhetoric that we've seen. Oftentimes, you know, clips go viral of state representatives saying things because we just go, wow, they're so crazy. This is a 950-page mainstream conservative document enshrining all of that into a document that undermines the rule of law, politicizes the civil service, gets rid of large swaths of the federal government in favor of consolidating executive power. Okay, Bjorn. Seriously, that was so much worse than I thought. Like, I really thought I was ready. But like, not gonna lie, that HHS language that they want was pretty shocking. Oof. Yeah. It, um. It's a it's a lot, and uh, and it's uh, it's so detailed. And you know, preparing for this, I put a lot of stuff in bullet points. But even thinking about what the framework for those bullet points are becomes even more overwhelming because it's it's such a it is not a project that is meant to be un- able to be undone. It is not a project that is meant to be. And in the next election, we will reintroduce a career civil service. There is that is not intended to ever happen next. Um, so the frame for these really explicit attacks on abortion and LGBTQI rights as the entry points for this Christian nationalist federal government. It's pretty. It's pretty startling in its bleakness. Okay, because it is so big and like so heavy and like i'm sure you have like easy silver bullet like how you can fix it no no no. like i know this is gonna be one of those where it's like bjorn what can the audience do and like there's not easy answers but i'm still gonna make you answer it i know i'm terrible so what can the audience do so i have a lot to say on this but none of it is easy or a single link that they can there's click not just and, like and the one i can send this tweet or like this yeah, one donate I, to this no. one place like a reasonable amount and like everything's fixed 
unfortunately, no. no. And I, I want to start again by acknowledging that there's, I think and work a lot on the anti-gender movement. And that in the last year has meant thinking so much more and working so much more with people working on global extremism and rule of law and democratic protections than in the rest of my career combined. We are not in the same moment we were five years ago or four years ago. And and starting with acknowledging that means that we have to try new things and do things differently. I think when we talk about what can people do, I want to lead off with don't lose hope. Um, This is really, this is bleak. And I think we all have our own senses of electoral politics right now that maybe don't feel good, but you have to start from a place of hope. Um, It's not a self-fulfilling prophecy. um, And, and, I think it's really important to not act too cool for school or like you knew this would happen. You've been talking about how it was going to happen. That's what authoritarianism and anti-democratic forces thrive on. Right? The hopelessness is a tool of oppression. Yes. They need us to be tired and to treat all of this as inevitable and, and past the point of return. So don't do that. On the flip side of not losing hope. I, I do want to reiterate that this isn't fringe, right? This is the Heritage Foundation. Many members of the previous administration, 80 organizations and counting, and a whole lot of money. So it means taking this very seriously and not losing hope together. But I believe in us that we can do that. Organizing locally tomorrow, this evening, now is an incredibly powerful thing that you can do. Presidential elections are not the only elections and organizing around judicial campaigns, school boards, local election officials, and especially the integrity of those local elections, the protection of those election officials and those school boards is so unbelievably important right now. That increased violence in the political space is pushing good people, people who are not in it for partisanship, but are in it for the rule of law. It's pushing them out of those spaces because of the threats to themselves and their families. That's not normal. And it's not something we need to accept. And it is something we can be organizing around in including the attacks on public libraries that is part and parcel of the same attacks. That's stuff we can be organizing around this week that dramatically changes the environment that we're working and organizing in. I will say the Brennan Center's done a lot of great work on this. Um, and it is explicitly this judicial safety and uh, the courts, the safety of the courts and the rule of law Almost always, this, this, the, the places that we're going to see the most risk and violence in the coming year are the states in which the judiciary has overturned state abortion restrictions. So abortion sort of is going to be the focal point of a lot of that judicial threat and threat to the rule of law, too. So even if your organization's at a repro organization, thinking about these electoral safety, judicial safety questions and integrity is is a really important thing that we can start start doing and incorporating into how we talk and think about ourselves and our work. Two books that I recommend, um, one of which is shorter, one of which is longer, is How Fascism Works by Jason Stanley. You know, it's a pretty slight volume, but it's uh, it's it's handy to getting your brain around some of the things you're seeing and experiencing, especially at the state level. And How to Stand Up to a Dictator by Nobel Prize winner Maria Ressa is um, she's a Filipino journalist. Um, and there's some incredibly good lessons also about tech, misuse of tech, inauthentic activity online, which I think people in the reproductive health rights and justice movements really um have been the cutting edge for in the US. And and there is also a lot to learn from her. I would also say in terms of what we can do is call it what it is when you're noticing the patterns. This is not normal partisanship. 
This is not, oh, I have different politics from people in my family. Um, this is really different. And being equipped to talk to your family and friends about why this is not a policy platform, but it's a roadmap for the end of inclusive democracy in the United States. Being equipped to have those conversations is really important. I think one of the most basic things that people can do is talk about Project 2025. Name it. Drag it out into the light of day. In your work, in your home, in your faith communities, like talk about it. They are telling us who they are, what they think of us, and what they think of representative democracy. And we need to believe them. So if you're in a union or a faith community or a mutual aid society or your job, do a brown bag on Project 2025. Pull out specifically what their intentions are for your work or your community. Make sure everyone understands the stakes. They're not being secret about it. So we have the chance to really raise it up and say, okay, what is it they're saying about labor? What is it that they are saying about interstate travel? What is it that they are saying about the federal civil service? Most of us have family members who are civil servants some way or another in the United States. Pull that out. Be ready to talk about it. See if your organization, if you work for an organization, can put out a public statement. Even if you're a C3, there are ways to speak out now. And we don't have to sit around and sort of just wait for them to destroy us and our ability to speak out. If you have questions about what your organization can do or say about Project 2025, reach out. Um, reach out to organizations like Alliance for Justice, which can really help C3 organizations figure out how they can still talk about big threats, big policy and partisan platforms without crossing the C4 line into electioneering. When your boss tells you that you can't say or do anything about Project 2025 because you're a 501c3, talk to an organization like Alliance for Justice or people who are really um, more uh, aware of what the actual sort of parameters are. I think one of the other things we can all do is demand more from the press, both the local press and the national press. Um, Project uh, Protect Democracy has a really amazing authoritarian handbook for reporters um, on how to contextualize and cover authoritarian threats. It's a really amazing resource. If you have friends or favorite reporters, send it to them. It's a really good resource. When reporters get it wrong, send letters to the editor. Talk about it on social media. I think people, particularly our age, Jenny, tend to think things begin and end with social media. But I actually want to really encourage people to write traditional letters to the editor and op-eds in your local papers. They have huge impact on the sort of people who vote in every election. Um, and right now, we're oftentimes seeding that space to older generations. We have the opportunity to tell people about Project 2025, about how profoundly anti-democratic it is. And, and we have to think about how we go to spaces that we've oftentimes seeded to older voters or older generations. And then I think my last sort of what can we do um, is to trust each other and build together, um, even if it needs to be kind of quickly. Um, 2024 is a really big year for democracy globally. Um, a huge portion of the world will be voting this year. So we have to behave differently. So even doing things that have been outside our Ballywick before, joining the meeting that you think you might be too tired to join, dropping off signs, building relationships with your neighbors, all of it matters. I want folks to kind of remember what those first months of 2020, uh, 2017 felt like when the norms, like before the norms had changed really dramatically. And those first couple of months of 2017, when everything still felt very shocking, remember what it felt like when Trump announced the Muslim ban. But then remember what it was like to have hundreds of lawyers and translators and helpers and activists all surge to the airports. That's the energy that we need now and not a year from now. 
So we still have the opportunity to do that. We don't have to treat it as inevitable. We can drag it out into the light of day. We can talk about how it harms us, our communities, our values, and we can do it in, in spaces across our lives. And it will make a really profound difference. Oh my God, Miriam, that was like the perfect ending. And thank you. Like, <clears throat> I think as, as I said, I couldn't imagine a better person to talk to about end times. And uh, yeah. They don't have to be the end times. What they envision is the end times for an inclusive democracy, but we don't have to go along with it. Bjorn, as always, thank you so much for being here. It's an absolute pleasure to be here with you, Jenny. Someday I will be here to talk about something joy-filled and light and just a litany of wins. Um, And I hope maybe that will be this time next year. Oh my God, I can't wait. Um, It's still a pleasure to be here with you and talk about some of the hard stuff. Okay, y'all, I had a wonderful time, wonderful time talking about terrible, terrible things um, with Bjorn. And honestly, I feel like that's just like trademarked for our conversations because I always have fun talking to her, but honestly, it's almost always terrible, terrible things. Um, But yeah, it was great talking to Bjorn. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. And again, thank you all. I'm just, again, so excited And again, just so proud of my team, uh, Rachel and Elena, also Meg, our editor. Just thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And we'll see you all next week for another episode of this award-winning podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or topics you would like us to cover, always feel free to shoot me an email. You can reach me at Jenny, J-E-N-N-I-E, at reprosefightback.com, or you can find us on social media. We're at Repros Fight Back on Facebook and Twitter, or Repros FB on Instagram. If you love our podcast and want to make sure more people find it, take the time to rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. Or if you want to make sure to support the podcast, you can also donate on our website at reprosefightback.com. Thanks all. 